0: Okay, Deuteronomy chapter 7. Yeah, I just thought, man, just kind of in light of where things are at these days and stuff going on in culture and the world, I thought, man, I just want to talk about what the Lord's doing in my heart and where I feel encouraged as your pastor and uh, for our church. And it's odd, but it's coming for me from the book of Deuteronomy, where I sense the Lord's been speaking to me. And, uh, So a little bit of background just to catch the heart of Deuteronomy. I want to remind you, Deuteronomy means second law. The second law. It is the final book of the five books of Moses. Moses wrote those first five books of our Bible called the Pentateuch. This is the final one. This is the swan song, okay? He's on his way out. That's what I want to tell you. He's on his way out and... This book, Deuteronomy, was written for the generation of people that was about to enter into uh, the promised land. Their parents were that generation that died during the wilderness wandering, okay? Their parents were the folks that stood on the precipice of entering into the promised land and then in their fear of men refused to enter and disobeyed the Lord and the Lord led them into the wilderness where that generation died off over a period of 40 years. And now a new generation, their children, who were all under the age of 20, back 40 years earlier, are standing on the verge of entering the promised land. And what Moses does is he's handing off the ball to Joshua to take the lead and to lead the people and Moses recounts to them the law for a second time. He recounts the law to a generation that's about to enter into the promised land, and they renew their commitment to the Lord. They say, we want to be the covenant people of God. The the Lord had promised to the descendants of Abraham the land that they were entering, and to take possession of it. And so they said, we want to live according to God's law, and we want to be His covenant people as we enter into the land. Now, the land that they were entering, the start of chapter 7 tells us, was inhabited by seven nations of people. They're all funny names, you know, they don't, you don't hear them today. The Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And the scripture says this about these nations. They were greater and they were more numerous than the children of Israel. Now when we talk about the children of Israel and coming out of the the land of Egypt and the size of this nation, it was like a million or two million people as they're getting ready to enter the promised land. But the scripture tells us that all of these nations were larger than them. And so that's astonishing to think about that because it's like, you know, when's the last time you met a Girgashite (laughs) or a Hittite or a Perizzite or any of these folks? But the Lord promised that these people and the land that they were living in would be handed over to the children of Israel and they would be defeated, Uh, the enemies would be defeated. And the Lord gave them some instructions through Moses in the early parts of Deuteronomy. Moses had instructed the people, don't intermarry with these folks. Don't give your sons to their daughters. Don't give your daughters to their sons. Don't make covenants with these nations. Moses said to them, he said, you're a holy people and you're set apart unto the Lord. You are his treasured possession. He has chosen you out of all of the nations of the earth. And and it's not because, Moses literally said this to them, it's not because actually there's anything special about you. It's actually because you're the fewest of the peoples that the Lord set his hand upon you and he made you his treasured possession and he chose you and he chose to set his perfection, his affections on you and to give you his law. And, and so in that sense, I always love this is that, Realize this, that the Lord's choice of them was not something in and of themselves, it was something in and of the Lord. You know, that's true for you too, that the Lord set his hand upon you, it's to do with himself, more to do with himself than it is to do with you. And he set his hand upon you, and he set his hand upon Israel, and he brought them out of the house of slavery brought them out of the house of Egypt, brought them out from under the authority of Pharaoh. And he, he told them, I am a faithful God who keeps my covenant of love with those who love me and obey my commands. And I repay to the face those who hate me. And so God promised to bless his people, to multiply them. And so to a new generation standing on the edge of entering into the land of promise, Moses said this. If you've got your Bibles, I want to read uh, chapter 7, verse 17 to 19. These are just verses that have been burning in my heart lately. It says this. If you say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember what, your, what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs, the wonders, the mighty hand, and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out, so will the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. So here they are. They're standing on the precipice, on the boundary line, on the edge of the promised land, knowing that along with God's promise, they had difficult days ahead. There were hard things in front of them. Uh, The promise of God was not the promise of ease. That's not what it was, but it was a promise of blessing. The generation of their parents had stood in the same spot, and the scripture tells us that their hearts melted. That's actually in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 26 to 28. Moses recounts that. He says, your parents stood here. Their hearts melted for fear of what was in front of them. They, they said, their parents had said, the people in these lands are greater than us and they're taller than us and they live in great and fortified cities, cities with walls as high to the heavens. That's what the scripture says. And their hearts melted, which to me is an interesting way to describe something that can happen to the heart. To say it melted. A, a heart melts, a heart that melts is one that's lost its courage. One that's faint, faint faint-hearted, a discouraged heart. Their hearts melted when they considered the nations before them, and their hearts melted when they considered the challenges before them. And to me, this is a, a passage that I found very encouraging lately because it deals with the human heart, and it points the human heart towards the Lord. It's pointing my heart towards the Lord. And Moses warned this new generation Don't have this conversation in your heart. There's certain things that as you're about to enter that which God is calling you into, that you're not to be saying in your own heart. And he says this, don't say these nations are stronger than us. Don't say these people are stronger than us. I would say this, when our hearts begin to speak like this, When we look out on the world and the self-talk starts and it's a defeated self-talk before we even begin to ever enter into what the Lord has called us into, that's not a good thing. Look at what the scripture tells us is this, is that the heart is the wellspring of life. When the word of God speaks of the heart, it is speaking of the innermost person, your affections. The heart, its desires, that voice that's inside of you, the conversation that happens, you know that one. The conversation that happens inside, that's the heart. It's the throne room. That's the place where the Lord Jesus Christ is to rule in our lives. And Moses warned the people, as that inner voice is speaking, sometimes it's going to say things that cannot be trusted. Your heart will say things that cannot be trusted. We've been, we've been working on some things around here in the church. I said, Peter, I want us to do some like t-shirts, you know, some one-off t-shirts. People Do one that says, don't trust your heart, you know, just as a conversation piece with people. It's coming. You'll get a chance to buy one. Don't trust your heart. Sometimes your heart is going to say things that cannot be trusted. When it says things that cannot be trusted, it has to be silenced, Moses says. It has to be rebuked. It has to be repressed. It has to be corrected. And in the case of the Israelites who faced the challenge of possessing the land that God gave them, the land that God gave them, it meant facing seven nations stronger than they. In in one sense, it was a singular enemy. But in another sense, seven nations larger than they were outnumbering them at least seven to one. Those are bad odds. Actually, you know, typically in the Bible, when you almost go through any battle, if you do the math, you'll find this, that God's people are often outnumbered 14 to one. 14 to one. And it's easy for the heart to begin to suggest, this is impossible. This is too hard. This is too difficult. Why bother? Let's not even try. In our time, I think it's easy for the same thing to happen to the church. And so church, I want to exhort us, Don't let these conversations happen in your heart. It's easy to look out on the world and say, well, the economy, well, the nations, well, the politicians, well, the globalists, well, the ideologies that are shaping our culture. should Should I make up seven to list off? To say these things and to allow our heart to move into the position of those who have hearts that melt, the defeatist, the bleak, the gloomy, the discouraged, the hopeless attitudes. And I want to remind you, you've been invited into the kingdom of God. And you serve a king who rules over the universe. And he's unfolding his plans and his purposes in this day and in this age. And it's not the time for the heart of the church to melt. Amen? Amen? You know, as Jesus was leading his disciples throughout all the villages of Galilee and teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the kingdom of heaven, he saw that people were harassed and helpless and he had compassion on them. The scripture says that he saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd and he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. Therefore pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Jesus said this, The problem is not the harvest, but the harvesters. The fields elsewhere, the gospels tell us, are white white unto harvest. You know, just coming through Galatians in the last number of months as we've been working through that on Sunday morning, one of the themes that the Spirit of God has stressed to our church and to me personally over the last little bit is that the children of God have opportunities before them. That when you enter into sonship, with God, you become his child through relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. By grace, led of the Spirit, entering into your identity in the Lord Jesus Christ is to let, enter into a life of opportunities, church. A servant has duties and responsibilities, but a son or a daughter with the full rights of an heir has access to the inheritance access to the Father's kingdom, and access to all of the opportunities it affords. In our thinking, the church of Christ needs to move back into the realm of opportunities. And sometimes that means this, the heart needs to be corrected. There's certain things that the heart says that need to be repressed, certain things that it says that need to go unheeded or silenced, The heart has to be guarded and silenced when it suggests, hey, we need to melt. You know, this morning I want to remind you, Jesus has already won. He is already won. The nations can rage. The nations can plot. But their plans are in vain. That's what the scripture says. That the kings of the earth, Psalm 2, and their rulers take counsel together against the Lord And against his anointed, and the Lord sits in heaven, and he laughs, saying, I set my king in his place. I set my king in Zion, my holy mountain. And the word of God instructs us, serve him in fear. Rejoice before him with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and his wrath be kindled against you, because blessed are those who take refuge in him. And so the Word of God always teaches the saints of God that we do not fight for victory, but from victory. So as the redeemed, blood-bought children of God, our position is not a defensive one. I want to remind you of this. Bear with me. Can I share a sports illustration? Okay. Can my coaching come out? Uh, you know, when I coached hockey with my boys all those years, which I love doing, I would train my teams with a defensive structure. You know, this is how we're going to defend. And I would make sure everybody knew their job. This is how we're going to defend, and this is how collectively we're going to work together. And I made sure that they knew their jobs so that on the ice, we would create layers of defense. So literally, the opposition would have to move through layers to get to our net. If the first layer broke down, there was a second layer, and so on, and the goalie was the last line of defense. But what I found in coaching was this. Defense was easy to teach, but offense was a little more challenging. I found that harder to teach. Anyone that coaches can tell you that because offense involves more Things than just applying some structure. It it involves a player's natural gifting and skills. You have to allow them to be creative. It it requires an IQ for sports, for like understanding the game. You need a hockey IQ, which can be taught, but not so much. You either got it or you don't have it. It's difficult to teach it. So, what you do is this when you want to teach offense, you teach skills. You train little skills. You develop skills like the ability to stick handle in traffic or shoot in stride or to keep your feet moving. Skills that will overcome your inability to think the game so that you'll learn to think the game. Some things are caught and some things are taught. And thinking the game, I would say, is often like this. It's it's often caught better than it's taught. You can explain something until you're blue in the face. I mean, we all have children. We know that. But it can be hard for a player to catch. And defense is easier to teach. So this is what I would do. I would teach the boys, when we're being shelled, and our opponent is really thrashing us, and we get on our heels, I'm going to yell something from the bench. And when I yell from the bench, you all have to know what the job is. And I would yell this, house! House! And when I would yell house, they knew all five of them were to collapse to our net to create layers rather than just giving free access to our net. But listen, what I want to tell you is this, in the kingdom of God, we don't collapse to the net. We don't do that. We're not on the defense. The church needs to get on the offense, church. We need individual disciples that want to get on the offense. We need a church that needs to get on, uh, we need to be a church that wants to get on the offense and to adjust our thinking accordingly. You say, well, the opponent, they're strong, man. Look at what they're doing. Look at their plan of attack. Well, then you better learn how to play offense because the enemy can posture and use whatever tactics he has to show himself greater and stronger, but I would remind you he has already been defeated. The score's already been counted. So when your heart rises up, followers of Jesus, and it begins to speak to you and point out the strength of the enemy, that internal voice needs to be silenced. It needs to be corrected. It needs to be rebuked because it is the voice that gives birth to fear and for God's people, the Lord is to be our fear. Let me remind you, the Lord is to be our fear. We're to fear God, and the Word of God teaches us to fear Him is the beginning of what? It's the beginning of IQ, wisdom. Moses instructed the people, when your heart says this is too strong for us, when your heart says this, these nations are too strong for us, How can I dispossess them in that place? He said this, you need to remember that your fear is to be singular, not plural. As a follower of Jesus, you're not to have many fears. You're to have one singular fear, and that is the Lord himself. And so Moses tells the people, do this to correct your heart. To correct your heart, remember what God did in Egypt. Remember what God did to the house of Pharaoh and in all of Egypt. We know this, that in biblical, in the biblical typology, the pictures that the Bible presents to us, Egypt is always a representation of the world and how the world enslaves people. The children of Israel were enslaved in the land of Egypt. Before Christ You were enslaved to this world, enslaved by sin. You were subject to the appetites of the flesh and all this world could offer. And then Christ revealed himself to you. You put your faith in his work, the work of the cross, the work of his death and resurrection, the work that paid for your sins and its punishment, the work that purchased uh, your redemption from sin and from this world and from death. And you were saved. You were saved. You were taken from being slaves to sin of the flesh and and slaves to uh, sin. And you were set free. Now for Israel in the land of Egypt, God raised up a man, Moses. From birth, he was set aside unto God. While Pharaoh was legislating live abortions in Egypt. He was legislating live abortions of Hebrew baby boys, God was preserving and preparing until his people would get desperate enough to cry out to them, cry out to him in their slavery. When the time was right, the man Moses had an encounter with Yahweh before the burning bush, and the Lord revealed himself to him. He said, I am that I am. Who are you, Lord? I am that I am. I will be whatever I need to be for my people. That's what that name means. And God sent him to Pharaoh. He said, you go to Pharaoh and you say, let my people go that they may worship me. And what was Moses' first response? His first response was this. I can't do that, Lord. I don't have the skills. I can't speak. You know, when you read that in the book of Exodus, the Lord didn't like hearing that, did he? What are you talking about? And he gave him a brother to go with him. His brother went with him, Aaron, Aaron. And they went before Pharaoh and God used these men. And before Pharaoh, uh, 10 plagues came upon the house of Egypt. We know this, that each of the plagues was a direct attack on Egyptian gods. It wasn't like random things that the Lord just chose. He was directly attacking the gods of Egypt and showing his strength to his people and to the Egyptians that he was greater. And it culminated in that final 10th plague. The death of the firstborn and the Passover happened, foreshadowing Christ, the Lamb of God, who would take away the sins of the world. And then God led his people out by miraculous acts. A pillar of cloud by day in the heat of the wilderness, they had shade and they had protection. A pillar of fire by night, giving them warmth in the cool desert and light to see. When they were hemmed in by an Egyptian army, the Red Sea split before them. Who ever heard of such a thing? They walked through on dry ground. And as Pharaoh and his army followed them in, they were washed out in that sea and lost their lives. As they wandered in the wilderness, God provided water from a rock, bread from heaven, shoes that did not wear out, clothes that did not wear out. The Lord led them to Mount Sinai where he uh, established his worship practices for them and gave them his law and gave them his priests and taught them how to follow. He defeated those who confronted them and he turned curses into blessings. And there were trials, there were testings, there were temptations, there were despairs, times of despair, but their eyes also saw wonders. Their eyes saw the mighty hand of God and they experienced his strength, his outstretched arm by which he brought them out. And the Lord brought them out by his strength. That's what Moses says. You have to remember the hand of the Lord. You have to remember his outstretched arm. And God hasn't led you to the precipice of the promised land and now stand back and say to you, good luck. Hope that goes okay for you. As if something had changed. He said to them this, in the same way I brought you out, Now in the same manner, by all the lessons learned, I will lead you in. Take possession of the land. You know, a generation earlier, when they stood on the edge of the promised land for the first time, Moses selected 12 men, 12 spies, one from each tribe. They went in, they spied out the land, as you know. They came back and 10 of them brought a bad report and they discouraged the hearts of God's people. Two came back and said, the Lord has given us this land. Let's take it. Let's go now. Let's do this thing for his glory. And Caleb and Joshua were those two men and God blessed them out of their entire generation. They were the only ones allowed to enter into the promised land, as you well know. 40 years Later, when Moses gave this teaching and handed the reins over to Joshua, Joshua and Caleb were there getting ready to lead the children into the promised land. And the Lord spoke to Joshua, one of those two spies from 40 years earlier. And the Lord said to him in Joshua 1.9, it'll be on the screen. Have I not commanded you? Be strong. And courageous, do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord is with you wherever you go. Church, this morning, I just want to exhort you and encourage you in the face of, I don't know, days that seem like great difficulty, and days where you're like, wow, what does the future hold? You need to guard your heart. We're not retreating to the net. We're not on the defense. We're the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the pillar and foundation of truth whom he has set in the world to be salt and light for his kingdom. The enemy has his plans, and they can be his plans, and they might look great to us, but silence the voice, repress the voice that says, this is too hard. There's too much great difficulty. I would remind you this morning what the Word of God says to the church of God, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. When God determines, the enemy is easily annihilated, isn't he? And so we have grounds to be confident. We're standing on the precipice of the kingdom of God uh, doing amazing things. I think We're on the days of seeing many come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ again. We have grounds to be confident. Those grounds are the past victories of the Lord who guarantees victory to come. And the greatest victory is through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the scripture calls us to live in the power that raised Christ from the dead. Let's not become lethargic or discouraged, or take hold of an attitude that would cause hearts to melt, collapsing to the net, so to speak. The gospel is an offensive tool, not a huddling tactic to retract and defend the net until Jesus comes. The kingdom of God is advancing, and Jesus said this, violent men take hold of it, which is an interesting translation. Violent men take hold of it, not violent in a negative, harmful sense, but violent in this sense. Those who seek to be powerful and forceful in action, not to harm people, not that kind of violence. It's a term of taking action. And so this morning, I just want to exhort you, don't say these things in your heart. Get on the offense. Nothing is to be dreaded when God goes before you because victory is assured and you can be confident In God. And this morning, we get to do this great action of confidence, and that's this to come to the Lord's table, to be reminded of the very act of the Lord Jesus Christ that leads us to victory and gives us the promise and hope of eternal life. That's the work of the cross. And this morning, uh, we're going to come to the Lord's table and partake of uh, the cup, which represents his blood and the bread which represents his body. And this morning, I just want to remind you, if you're visiting with us, um, I want to tell you, we practice here at our church in open communion. You're welcome to participate with us in coming to the table of the Lord and receiving the communion elements. But I also want to tell you this, that the scripture implores this, that if you don't know the Lord Jesus, that if Jesus is not your personal Lord and Savior, the word of God instructs us that you should refrain from partaking in the table of the Lord. And so I would just ask you to do this. If you don't know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior this morning, would you just kind of respect what we're about to do and uh, withhold? And we would appreciate that. The Lord would appreciate that. In fact, the scripture says this, that if you come to the table of the Lord in an unworthy manner, you eat and drink judgment upon yourself. So open communion, but if you don't know the Lord Jesus, I'd encourage you just to withhold, but I want to give you one more option, and that's this. You want to know the Lord Jesus? You want to give your life to Jesus? You want to surrender to Jesus? You want to acknowledge the salvation and receive the salvation that's made available through his death and resurrection, then do this by faith this morning. Come to the table of the Lord. Come and say, Jesus, I recognize my sin separates me from my Father in heaven, and I want to be in right relationship. I want to repent of sin, and I want to come in faith and receive of these elements that represent your body and your blood. Come and do that this morning, and we'll partake together, and we'll celebrate with you eternal life. And so would you stand with me? I'm going to invite the worship team to come. Let's pray this morning, and then we're going to partake of the Lord's table. Father, I just thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, that uh, victory belongs to you. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that your kingdom is advancing. And we pray this morning, Jesus, may your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus, I just pray that you would shake us from any position of being defeatist, Lord of being on the defense, Lord, of living a life of fear rather than being bold and courageous for you and your kingdom. Jesus, we pray that our church, that our lives would leave a mark on this community, on this world, on this nation for you, Lord, and for your glory. And so, Jesus, we offer ourselves to you this morning. Lord, we offer ourselves to you as living sacrifices. Lord, as an act of worship, we pray, God, that you would just consume us for your glory, for your name, for your kingdom, for your gospel. We pray, Lord, that you would empower us to proclaim Christ to our neighbors, to our coworkers, to our friends in this community. We pray, Jesus, that we would see your your kingdom come and advance in Gibsons, and that we would watch lives transformed and changed, And so Lord, would you shake us this morning out of any lethargic position, any position of fear and move us into that place, Lord, where we remember your work and your deeds and all that you've done to save us. And this morning, Lord, we remember the most important one, the work of the cross, your death. And Jesus, this morning, as we remember, we want to Just offer ourselves to you and look to your great work of the cross to remember, Lord, what you've done looking backwards and to, with anticipation, look forward to all that you're going to do. And so, Lord, I pray your blessing on your people and upon our time as we come to the table in Jesus' name.